Good morning. morning. He is risen. risen Yeah. When I first became a Christian, I didn't know why everyone did that after you said he is risen, Uh, but now I've embraced it. I love it, and uh, it is good to celebrate the risen Jesus today on this Sunday morning. My name is Jim Mullins, one of your pastors, and I want to start today by talking about an important moment, a life-changing moment in history. Early on a Sunday morning, 37 years ago, my grandma opened the oven and revealed the most glorious tray of golden flaky biscuits the world has ever known. You can check the history books. There has never been a better batch of biscuits than what my grandma made on that day. I was three years old. It was one of my first memories. There was a big imprint on my mind of seeing those delicious biscuits. And it was a big day for me because I had just been dropped off in a new home and I needed some comfort. See, one day my mom dropped me off at my grandma's house, and she didn't come back. Nobody knew where she went. And for days, I could hear the adults in the house in hushed tones trying to figure out what had happened. And I walked around with my little He-Man blanket clutched in my hands that reminded me of my mom. And I tried to listen in, and I tried to understand what these adults were saying just so I could get a clue as to where my mom was and when I would see her again. And I think in that moment, when I needed comfort, my grandma, she saw me. And she did one of the kindest things. I think the heavens opened up and gave her supernatural, gave her supernatural abilities, and she went into the kitchen and whipped up the greatest batch of biscuits the world has ever known. And she invited me to a feast. She called me out of the living room and into the kitchen and said, Jimmy, she's the only one who can call me that, by the way. Uh, Jimmy, come in the kitchen. I have something for you. And she laid out a feast and she cared for me and comforted me in my time of need. When I was at my lowest, she met me with a feast. Early on a Sunday morning, 37 years ago, my grandma opened the oven and revealed a feast of golden flaky biscuits. Today, On Easter Sunday, when we celebrate the resurrection, what we're going to do is we are going to actually go hundreds of years before the resurrection, hundreds of years before Jesus walked among us and read Isaiah 55, this poetic description of God's feast, a poetic invitation that God is inviting his people to a great feast. It was written to God's people who had lived in their homes and then one day the Babylonian empire came in and took them out and carried them off into exile into a new home. 
and they were disoriented and discouraged, felt like God had stopped speaking to them. And they needed comfort. And how does God respond to them in their time of need, in the time where they were desperate for comfort? He invites them to a feast. Isaiah 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. What's happening in this passage is that God is inviting his people to an extravagant feast, a feast that satisfies the deep craving of their soul, and he's given it to them in the moment when they need comfort most. Isaiah uses poetic language. And what he's trying to do here is, is, is trying to evoke a feeling, a feeling that reminds you, that reminds the hearers of, of what it's like to be hungry and thirsty. It's, it's like saying, do you remember what it's like to be thirsty? Where you're out in the desert and the heat is just beating down on you and you just want a sip of water. You know that feeling? Come to the waters. Come be hydrated by God's goodness. You remember what it's like when you're hungry? When you did some trendy intermittent fasting thing and you just wanted something to eat? You remember that moment? That feeling that you are feeling, that hunger, your soul has a hunger and it is craving God and what he can provide. And so God offers a feast. This is a life-saving feast. Isaiah says that the purpose of this feast is that your soul may live. This isn't a matter of preference. Warren Williams in here, he's always got these little like hot takes on where to go get food and everything, and he's wrong all the time. Um, this isn't preference. This is when you're starving, you'll even eat the food that Warren says is good, right? Because you need it to survive. One of my favorite shows is Alone. Who, who, anyone here watch it? It's these maniacs, these people who go out in the forest for, uh, uh, to win a million dollars, and it's how long can you stay in the forest and survive out in the cold, out in the elements with like bears coming after you and stuff. And I'd probably last like three hours. Um, but some of these folks are out there for months, and when you see them, they are wasting away. And they're... they're they're often going in and out of consciousness because they're so desperate for something to nourish them. Imagine if that was you in that situation. You're out in the forest, you're out in the cold, and you just need something to eat. And then one of the medics comes and is moving towards you and is coming to rescue you and, and, and has some food for you that is the difference between life and death. That's what God is offering in this feast. But this feast is also extravagant, not just functional. Verse 2, it says, eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. It's not just sufficient, but it is abundant. It is extravagant. Imagine if that medic who's coming to save you in your freezing moment out in the middle of the forest shows up 
doesn't give you some chalky protein bar, but for some crazy reason has a platter of biscuits and gravy, steaming hot out in the middle of that freezing forest, and you're eating that. Imagine what that would be. Imagine that satisfaction. That's what God is offering to your soul to keep you alive and to give you a feast. I imagine if Isaiah was speaking in our day, because here's the thing, I'm not really all that enticed by Isaiah's pitch here on the specifics. He says that this feast has, for some strange reason, wine and milk and bread. That's a weird party right there, right? <laughs> that, especially the milk doesn't feel all that extravagant. Like most of you guys are lactose intolerant and just couldn't handle it anyway. <laughs> But I, what, would, what would Isaiah say if he was using this metaphor with us? Maybe something like, come, everyone who is hungry and feast on biscuits and gravy. Sink your teeth into a buttery masterpiece with a gentle crunch on the outside and a soft, pillowy center as if God gave a portion of a cloud and put it inside <laughs> of a biscuit. Come delight in delectable biscuits that are smothered and baptized in flavorful gravy. Come feast. The message is God is the biscuits and gravy on a Sunday morning, the only thing that can satisfy the deep craving of your soul. Now, lest you think I'm being irreverent by comparing God to biscuits, I just want to remind you that in John 6, Jesus called himself the bread of life. And I would argue that the highest form of bread is biscuit, right? So this is my way of honoring him. John 6:35. Jesus answers the cry of Isaiah. Isaiah had been giving this invitation to a feast, but in those days they wouldn't know how it got fulfilled. But Jesus likely with this Verse in the, the verses of Isaiah 55 in his mind cries out and says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Isaiah gave the invitation, but Jesus delivers on it. He is the very one who is the bread of life, whom our souls were made to feast upon, who nourishes us, who gives us life, and who satisfies the deepest cravings of our heart, the Jesus that we celebrate on this Easter Sunday. Now, the question is, if God is inviting them to this great feast, why would anyone reject that invitation? Why? Isaiah has the same question. He, Isaiah's, his, his question is, why, why do you spend your money on that which does not satisfy? Why do you work so hard and, and spend your money on something that costs you something when you have a free meal and it deeply satisfies you? Why? Well, they don't know maybe what's on the menu. So Isaiah and the rest of the chapter names these different aspects of who God is and how, and as you look at each of these, they correspond with the deep desires, the deep cravings of our heart. But we also see that what Isaiah is offering, Jesus is also fulfilling. The question is, in this great feast, what's on the menu? 
and it's all the things your soul craves. What does your soul crave? Your soul craves love. In a world of transactional relationships where people are trying to get to know you so they can get something from you, you crave the transformational love of God that moves toward you even when you have nothing to offer. Isaiah says this is on the menu in verse 3 when he talks about the steadfast love of God that he had for David. King David is now being extended to all of God's people. That close, intimate relationship is now available to all who call on his name. But Isaiah offers it, but Jesus fulfills it. Jesus, the bread of life, shows us that God's love isn't just some cheap sentimentality, but it's extravagant. And it's the type of love that compelled him to go to the cross where we celebrated on Good Friday, where he absorbed this brutal death to give you life and to take on your sins and to give you his life, to show you with every wound, with every second of suffering on that cross, the deep love that God has for you. Come feast on God's love. Your soul craves presence in a world of loneliness and distraction where we're all just endlessly staring at some glowing screen and you want someone who can actually look at you and say, I know you. I know you for who you are, and I'm giving my attention and my presence to you. Your soul craves real attention and presence. Isaiah offers it talking about the God who's moving near to us, but Jesus fulfills it. Jesus, the great bread of life, didn't stand at a distance, but he took on flesh and became a human and moved towards a, a lost humanity that was craving the bread of life. And he didn't just move towards humanity generally, but he moved towards you. Him taking on flesh was him coming for you and giving his attention to you and seeing you. And he's still doing it. He's locked in on you and offers a presence that your soul craves. Will you feast on the presence of God? Your soul craves forgiveness. You may not use this word, but in a harsh and unrelenting world where it feels like you're under the microscope and you have to craft some identity so that people don't know who you really are and how you really think and what you've really done, your soul craves someone who can know all of that and look at you and love you and say, I forgive you and I'm still with you. Isaiah offered it by saying that God is full of this abundant pardon, but Jesus, the bread of life, fulfills it. Not by merely uttering words of forgiveness, but by offering his body on the cross so that you could be forgiven and your sins paid for. Your soul craves a secure future. In a world where the future seems so unstable and you look at the people that you love, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's someone else, you look at them and you just hope that they're going to be okay. And you hope, you wish that somebody, your soul craves somebody who can look at you and say, it's going to be all right without that fear and uncertainty in their eyes. And Isaiah says, this is what's on the platter. This is what's on the menu. As, as in 
Verse 11, he starts talking about the future, the new creation that God is going to bring. And he's grasping for words and images to use it, uh, to use to describe the joy and the peace that's coming. And he describes mountains singing and the trees clapping their hands and the whole creation bursting out into song to describe what is going to come when God makes all things new. And what was poetry in Isaiah becomes real in Jesus. Jesus, the bread of life, fulfills it, takes it further. When he bursts out of the tomb and shows that he has power over death and the ability to take this broken, messed up world and make new creation with his renewed body, pointing to the day with him being the first fruits of a new creation, pointing to the day when he'll return to wipe away tears, to make all things new to send death into remission, to reconcile former enemies, to bring us into the unhindered presence of God where we will feast on all that he is and all that he has for us. Will you come to the feast? Will you come and feast on the one who offers a better future? That's what's on the menu. Love and presence and forgiveness and a better future. And the best part of all of this is that Isaiah says, that it's free, it's without money and without price. Isaiah made this offer with the ink of his pen, but Jesus fulfilled it with the blood of his cross. Because of our sin, we deserve distance and death, but through the cross, Jesus pays the price so that we can be invited into this eternal feast and receive what God is offering to us. Every morsel of the feast that is being offered was paid for through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Will you come and feast on this extravagant gift that God is offering? This feast that satisfies the deep craving and hunger of your soul. Again, Why would we walk away from this? Why would we say no to such a a gift? Isaiah's question again. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why? Why are you working so hard for that chalky protein bar when God is offering the bread of life, Jesus Here's what our problem is. Here's why. We don't know the difference between biscuits and gravy. We don't know the difference between biscuits and gravy. Let me explain. I had this cousin. He would always come over for Sunday morning biscuits, and the best way I could describe him is he would be like if a Muppet came to life. Like that's what this kid was like. It's, it's hard to explain, but like his mannerisms, his whole way of being, like, like you don't believe me, but if you saw him, you would immediately get it. You're like, okay, my cousin, the Muppet, right? One day we were sitting there and grandma began to make the biscuits and the smell began to waft through the house. And I mean, it was just enticing us and he couldn't handle it. He was so hungry. He took his spoon. He had this crazy look in his eyes and he reached across the table and he just dipped it in the gravy and took a spoonful. And he looked around, and he did it again. (laughs) 
And we were looking at him like, I can't believe, I think he might be the first person in history to do this, right? And soon enough, he's pulling that bull towards him and treating this bowl of gravy. And we're not talking about the smooth brown, we're talking about the chunky white gravy and treating it like it's a bowl of soup as he, this, this five-year-old kid probably put down 30 ounces of, of gravy in that moment. Now here's the problem. By the time the biscuits came, his stomach was full. He had no appetite. As a matter of fact, he was in pain. He was over in the other room, keeled over from what the, the damage that these, this bowl of gravy was doing to him. And here's the thing. The main thing, the meal, the feast is the biscuit. The gravy is just the supplement. It's just the side dish. God is the biscuit and everything else is the gravy. God is the one who satisfies our deep craving that we were made for and things like family and work and comfort and significance and recreation are all good things, but they are all gravy. They are all good things. They are gifts from God. But when we try to make them the center, the main thing, they will not nourish us. They are the gravy that gets poured over the the main feast. But make no mistake about it, the main thing, the one that nourishes us, the feast itself is God. Gravy is good. But you would think someone is out of their mind if you went to Quick Trip and you saw that they had some, one of those little like slushy machines just filled with gravy and they were just, you know, pulling that lever, doing 30 ounces of gravy and just walking out of there you would say, there's something off. And it's not that there's a problem with the gravy, it's just there's a problem with that person's priorities that they're drinking that gravy. It's absurd. But here's the thing. We all have the tendency to drink the gravy. When you make your life about career and success, you are drinking gravy and it will not satisfy. When you make your life about comfort and pleasure, you are drinking gravy and it will not satisfy. When you make your life about crafting a perfect identity and personality to display to others, you are drinking gravy and it will not ultimately satisfy. What satisfies is the bread of life, Jesus, who is at the center and our souls crave everything about him. We were made for him. We need him. He nourishes us. He gives us life. But we have a tendency to seek from other things that which we can only get from God. I struggle with this. Every one of us struggles with it. I want to tell you about my struggle with it. It's not one I'm entirely fired up about, but I just want to be honest with you about it. Um, I have a tendency to seek from food what only God can provide. And you're probably saying, no kidding, the way that you have been describing biscuits, (laughs) like, we assumed there was a problem. (laughs) And there is. And there is. But in the moments of stress and in pain, I have this tendency to move towards food rather than moving towards God. So I want to I walk you through it. But before I do, I just want to be really clear on something, uh, that food is good, 
Um, I've had, I have some friends who struggle with eating disorders. I want to be very clear that I'm saying food is good and that this is not speaking to your situation. Um, this is uh, more speaking to a situation that I struggle with. But food is good. Food is good. But guess what? Food is not God. It cannot provide ultimate comfort. And it's not the place that satisfies our deepest cravings. It helps for like 15 minutes, but then whatever was there before is still there. And I think I know where this began, this struggle. Early on a Sunday morning, 37 years ago, my grandma opened up an oven and revealed a glorious tray of golden flaky biscuits. It was my earliest memory, and I was a three-year-old kid dealing with things that no three-year-old kid should ever have to deal with. And as I was sitting there with my grandma and I was eating those biscuits, it was the first sense of comfort that I had had in days. And it was good, and it was a gift from God delivered through my grandma. But I think that's probably the origin story of my struggle, of moving toward food for comfort when things get stressful and when struggle comes into my life. I mean... It wasn't just then, but it's been a pattern throughout my life. And it probably was accelerated when I was in high school. Uh, high school age, I dropped out of high school actually, um, but I was 16. We had a bunch of teenage folks all living in the same house, a bunch of boys like living kind of like a Lord of the Flies in Chandler, Arizona in this apartment. And we were never homeless. We were never without food, but it felt like it got close sometimes. And so anytime I would go somewhere where there was free food, I would just eat as much as I possibly could. Or if I'd go to Fazoli's, the little, uh, the little Italian fast food restaurant, I'd snatch like breadsticks off of people's plates when, they, when they'd walk away and things like that. And I was starting hoarding it, and it, it created this pattern where I seek comfort from food in stressful situations, and I eat as much as I can whenever free food is available. This is a problem when you're a pastor because you get a steady diet of stressful situations and apparently donuts around every corner. So <laughs> it's a complex problem, and there's, there's a number of ways that I'm addressing it. I have some friends helping me, some people here at the church, but I just want to talk about one aspect of it, is that in the moments of stress, and anxiety. It feels like there's this voice. It's not an audible voice, but there's this almost this calling that says, you need comfort. You need to be nourished. And I usually take that as an invitation to go to Culver's and get ice cream. <laughs> but what if that anxious craving, that underneath that anxious craving, that longing, that hunger and the, the moment of stress is actually an invitation from God, similar to the one that Isaiah is giving that says, come to me and feast and receive all that I have to give you. And over the last several months, I'm probably 50-50 on this, I've, I, what I've been trying to do is to take those moments and instead of going to the ice cream, take those moments and say, God, I'm here, can I just feast on your love and your forgiveness and your kindness and your presence in this moment. And those have been some of my sweetest times with Jesus. Underneath 
the anxious craving as an invitation to a better feast. And you have this too. You have your own type of anxious craving. Some of you, it's the anxious craving for control. You're afraid of the future, so you make endless plans and you strategize and you have spreadsheets and you annoy everyone around you because you are making plans to make sure bad things don't happen. And your plans may be good, but underneath that is an anxious craving to be invited to a feast, to sit with the God who's sovereign and holds history in his hands. Here, the underneath the anxious craving, the call to come and feast and be with Jesus. Some have the anxious craving for escape. When life gets hard, you turn to endless entertainment just so that you can get away. But after you've been watching episode after episode of that show, what has been driving you? It's an anxious craving. And under that anxious craving may be an invitation for you to come and feast on the God who is your refuge, who has something to give to you that that entertainment can't, where you find your escape in him. What is it for you? It might be a craving to be known or a craving for meaning or security. But if we slow down and stop and listen and don't try to just satisfy ourselves with gravy. But listen, there is God inviting us and offering the great feast that will satisfy our souls, the bread of life, the risen Jesus. And I know many in this room have experienced it. But I also want to speak to those who haven't, or maybe those who doubt it. Because I was once in a place like some of you where I was dragged to church by my grandma on a Sunday and I was just wishing this dude would stop talking about biscuits or whatever he was rambling about just so we could get home and I could satisfy my grandma and say I went to church once this year. And what I thought was, what these, this preacher is saying sounds nice, but it sounds too good to be true. And when it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. Like, I, Superman seems like a great concept, Wish it was true, but it's just not true. And that's how I was thinking about this Jesus stuff. I was asking, isn't this just a fairy tale? Are, are we just being catfished by some old religious guys 2,000 years ago who, who made up a story to feel good about themselves? How do I know that this feast is real and that this offer is real? And to answer those questions, I'm not going to give you a sales pitch. I'm not going to give you an argument. I'm only going to point to one thing, the resurrected Jesus. The fact that he was brutally killed on Friday and defeated death and stepped out victorious on Sunday with a whole body and a real life and saying everything that I've said before and the whole history of the biblical story that was pointing to this great feast, pointing to this God that you can come and know is now validated in the fact that I am here and that I am risen. You see, early on a Sunday morning, 2,000 years ago, God provided something better than grandma's breakfast. Rather than opening an oven, God opened up a tomb and revealed the risen Christ, the one who's the bread of life, the feast who can satisfy our souls. Early on a Sunday morning, 
2,000 years ago, a group of, of devastated women, including Jesus' own mother, wandered to a tomb where Jesus' body was left to decay, and they found it empty. And angels saying, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Early on a Sunday morning, 2,000 years ago, Jesus stepped out of the tomb and began to show himself and reveal himself to his followers. Not just his disciples, but over 500 people showing them his scars, showing his resurrected body, showing that this is not a fairy tale or a myth or just some religion concept, but a resurrected real body that had conquered death. And these people so believed in what they encountered in the real resurrected Jesus that they were willing to die for it. Later in their life, many of them would be persecuted and put to death and all they would have to do is renounce Jesus and say, I didn't see him resurrected in order to get out of it, but they died because they knew that it was true and they knew that he was risen. And they also knew that early on a Sunday morning, 2,000 years ago, Jesus stepped out of the tomb and proved that he had power over death and would one day return and vanquish all that terrorizes our world. He would send cam cancer into permanent remission when he returns and breathe life into asthmatic lungs and take words like sin and abandonment and methamphetamines and loneliness and rip them straight out of the dictionary because Jesus has conquered sin and Satan and death through the resurrection. Early on a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, Jesus stepped out of the tomb and went to his disciples who were afraid, who had formerly abandoned him, and he made them breakfast. And it, and he reminded them, he spoke peace to them and reminded them of the God who was, whom they truly longed for, who could provide love and comfort and presence, all that their souls craved. Early on a Sunday morning, 2,000 years ago, Jesus stepped out of a tomb to invite a room full of people in Tempe, Arizona, wearing pastel clothes and eating donuts and smiling. Yet underneath the donuts and the pastel, there's a craving for something real. And with his real resurrected body, invites us to feast on the God who satisfies the deep cravings of our soul. Let's pray. God, our hearts hunger and thirst for you. Show us not just that you are the good news of this day and the, the reality of your character that we need and how it longs, it fulfills our deep longings, but also the reality that this isn't just some story, but there is a resurrected king who is showing us that this offer, that this feast is real. We honor you and celebrate our resurrected king. In Jesus' name, amen.